Well, most importantly this morning, I want to, um, I say most importantly, I'm a papa. So, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. And I apologize that we've never celebrated Grandparents' Day here at the church, but we are this year. It's in September. We have our own holiday. I didn't even know it. And uh, it's just so awesome. I've, I, I, I tried to bring a picture this morning. It wasn't clear enough for our projector, but um, I, uh, I've, I've lost my Facebook privileges. My wife and my daughter have said I cannot post anything more on Facebook for a while, so I'm saving up pictures of Bear... Barrett Andrew Eckerson, and uh, I'm going to post a bunch of those, and just uh, just really, really thankful. Mom's doing great. Baby's doing great. Our son-in-law is deployed in the Middle East, and uh, so uh, Maddie and, and Baby Bear, that's what we call them, are living with us, and uh, so it's just been a pleasure. It's been great, and I'm telling you, grandkids are extra special, aren't they? They just are, so really, really thankful for that. Well, two weeks ago, Heather spoke. Didn't Heather do a great job? Wow. Just awesome. Did such a good job. It's online. We actually videoed it. We, we secretly videotaped her. <laughs> I got in trouble for that one. So we, we videotaped her. She didn't know it. And, uh, but I, I twisted her arm and talked it into letting, her, letting us put it online because I know some folks couldn't be here that really... I never had anybody request to have me on video, but Heather, you know, lots of requests. So, you know, I had, she just did a great job in Joshua chapter 4, Stones of Remembrance. Um, I, I, it, was, it was like deja vu up here watching her speak. It reminded me of several years ago. We were out at her parents' farm, and uh, there was a group of guys. We were out there skeet shooting. I was having a blast shooting skeet, and Heather just walks up to the field where we were, and she says, what are you guys doing? You're, I mean, she knew what we were doing. What are you guys shooting skeet? Yeah. She goes, well, I want to try. All right, you know. So I hand her my 12-gauge, and I show her how to, you know, get it all ready. And I tell her, all you got to do is just say pull, and you just shoot the target. You know, it's real simple, you know. And then, uh, so she does. She gets this big old 12-gauge. She's like this. And she goes, what do I say? I say, say pull. Pull. Boom. Hits it dead center. Explodes it. Hands me back my shotgun and goes, well, that's easy. And then walks off. I had the similar feeling last time, last week when she spoke. Very similar feeling. <laughs> and, uh, but she did, she nailed it. It was just, it was just fantastic. So we're in Joshua chapter five. And it is a, it's an interesting passage because it's on a subject that, um, I don't know, I think most pastors aren't exactly excited to preach on, which is a subject uh, called circumcision. Um, I've been even thinking about it a little bit this week, having a, you know, a little boy that's grandson that's just a week old. So anyway, it's even comfortable, uncomfortable saying the word circumcision. Uh, so I thought we would do something. I thought on the count of three, we'll all say the word circumcision together so we can all feel uncomfortable. How about that? On the count of three, one, two, three. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that, those of you who are listening on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. So hopefully we're all uncomfortable now just as, just as much as I am. So, but it is a really important truth that we find in Joshua chapter 5. So oh, turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. Now there's three things we're going to talk about this morning, and they have huge, huge implications uh, for our life in Christ, for us 
uh, uh, living lives that are strong and, and that are courageous. And, and so the first thing we're going to look at, uh, if, if, to set the stage in case uh, you haven't been following us exactly um, in this series or you're new today, uh, we're in Joshua, we're talking about the children of Israel uh, possessing, taking the land that God has been promising them since the time of Abraham. And they have, they've spied out the land. They're here. The Lord has parted the Jordan. They've, uh, they've come across. They've built the stones of remembrance. So their kids, their grandkids. So even to this day that our generation and generations to come will speak of the goodness and the greatness of God. And so they've just, they've just come across the Jordan. And that's where we find ourselves. I'm actually going to start in verse 24 of verse of chapter 4. Because it gives us the reasons why this happens. It says that he's speaking of the Lord. He did this so all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. Because it is, isn't it? He wanted everybody to know the powerfulness of his hand so that you might walk always in the fear of the Lord your God. And that reverence, that understanding of the greatness of the magnitude of who God is. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast, because there were all these city-states, maybe as you've studied in history, where there were these cities, these fortified cities, and they, each city would have a king. And that's the, that's the idea of what we're talking about. So all these kings on the coast and in the mountains heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan. I mean, word was spreading fast. Uh, maybe there were spies. Maybe those that lived near the river saw, but word spread throughout the land of what God had done. And when this happened, their hearts melted in fear. The kings, the people of, the, of Canaan, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Their, their hearts were just, were just melted in fear. And so the Canaanites here are going to have to choose. They have a choice they're going to have to make. And in these next several weeks, we're going to be in talking about battles. And, and there's going to be some ethical things that we're going to really talk about and, and unpack. Because when you first look at the glance of this, it's like, why was there so much destruction? Why was there so much killing? Why did this have to happen? But to undergird that, we need to understand that the Canaanites had a choice at this moment. When they heard of the magnitude of God, when they heard when their hearts melted in fear, when they, when they began to experience the, the, the awesomeness of who this God of Israel is, that at that moment they could have chosen to humbly surrender to him. I mean, that's what Rahab did, right? When Rahab met the Israelites, when she had heard of what had, had happened, her heart it melted and she, she submitted to the Lord. And, she, and we'll find out she, she's going to be saved as they come to, Jer- to Jericho. And so, but there was a hardening of hearts that happened as they, as they responded in fear and they fortified their cities. And, and even though they heard of what happened, they were preparing for what was, what was going to happen as they looked at this opportunity. And so here, the, here this is, the children of Israel have come across this river. It's been, sp- it's been split. Millions have come across. I mean, they are... They have to be on like cloud nine, right? I mean, I know I'm a happy grandpa, but as splitting of the Jordan, right? I mean, all these things happening, it just must have been like a monumental occasion. They're coming off that high, and all the kings are, are fearful. They're afraid. Uh, they, I mean, if you're a strategist, like this is the moment to attack, right? 
Like this is the moment of opportunity that they have been waiting for because the, the morale is down across the whole nation. I mean, this is the time to go for it. And so we really have to think of, and this gives us time to pause and talk about opportunity. To talk about opportunity. Of how do we respond when God gives us opportunity? What is our response when there's an opportunity in front of us? Because how we respond to opportunity has huge implications, not only in our lives, but in the lives of, of those around us. Anybody here ever heard of the Battle of Dunkirk uh, from World War II? Maybe you saw the movie. Um, early this year, which kind of popularized this battle. If, you, if, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, what, what happened is that uh, Germany had been pushing, they, they surprised France, they, they actually pushed all the way across France, and uh, the French and then the English that were helping the French were caught there on the coast on the English Channel. And so the Germans had driven them there. There were hundreds and thousands of them caught on this beach at Dunkirk, and, and they were surrounded. And there was a military decision that was made to hold off and to not attack. And when this decision was, 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 was decided, it, nobody really knows why. Uh, they say maybe the supply lines were short. They were afraid they couldn't uh, take them all at once, so they, they, they moved in for aerial assault, but yet the weather was bad, so that wasn't as effective as it could have been. But even historians talk about, about what, what was it that caused them not to really take advantage of this opportunity. And, and what happened on the English side is that Winston Churchill, who is, who is a brand new prime minister, they began to assemble a rescue operation. And, but what history, what history doesn't tell us, okay, what movies don't often tell us, is that that week that the nation, in fact the Archbishop of Canterbury with the Church of England, called for a week of prayer and of fasting. History, that wasn't in the movie if you saw the movie. And in fact, most of the English didn't even know of the dire situation because the news was being censored. Yet the people of God began to pray. And I'm not trying to tie God into nationalism, but it is interesting. It is interesting that as the people of England began to pray, that one of the most amazing rescue operations in the history of battles began to happen. That there were over... There were their fleets of boats that the English used, but over 700 private boats helped rescue, and, and miraculously, on May 27th, it began. They thought they would only have two days to rescue, and they thought maybe they could save 45,000 men over the next 48 hours. But as the Germans continued to delay, as they didn't move forward, over a period of eight days, they were able to rescue 332,226 soldiers. From that beach on that day, just most of them were being by fisher boat, fishermen and their boats, and, and it was just an amazing, amazing thing that it was a missed opportunity. And so that's one side where you see where the Germans really missed this opportunity. But we see, I mean, I believe that the prayers of God's people must have made a difference in that situation. But then you have the other extreme, right? You have remember, I know I'm quoting movies today. Is an old one, right? Dead Poet Society. Where he gets it. Somebody likes the movie. Man. Or got the Holy Ghost. I don't know which. But so, so there, it's, uh, you know, he's the teacher. He's standing up on the, on the chair, Robin Williams, and he's, he's, you know, being demonstrative and 
Carpe diem. You remember? What does it mean? You guys remember from the movie, don't you? Seize the day. That's right. Go for it. Don't miss it. Go for it. And, and, and I mean, that's really the American way, isn't it? Like, if there's an opportunity, make the most of it and go for it. But when we find ourselves facing opportunities, when we find ourselves facing decisions, what we really want is we want the mind of the Lord, don't we? What we really want is we want to know what does the Lord say about this? Because we're in a culture that rushes, aren't we? We're in a culture that asks for decisions like this. We're in a culture that you don't have long. You'll miss the opportunity where everything's so fast and so fast. And I'm telling you, most of my decisions have come, best decisions have come slowly. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, if you can only buy it today, right? (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't buy it today. (laughs) Right? And so... This love at first sight, oh, it's the one, you know. Give it some time, right? And so how do we face these opportunities? And this is so amazing to me. It's so amazing to me, this story, because here you would think the logical thing, right, would be for the, the Israelites to go for it. Let's get these swords out and let's take the land God has given us. But look and see what God does. Look, I mean, his strategy is not the strategy of of man. And what he's going to do here is he's going to restore their relationship. That's the blanks in your notes. This is the next passage of restoring their relationship. So at that time, they had just crossed, right? They're ready. Everybody's afraid. Let's go for it. The Lord doesn't say charge. The Lord says to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. What, Lord? What? I thought we were to do battle. Nope. It's time to get the knives out, guys circumcise them again so joshua made flint knives they couldn't have been very sharp i'm just saying i just i'm just saying we got a grandson i'm thinking about these things right now his is next his is this week so i hope the doctor doesn't use a flint knife so so enough about okay i'm going to be one of those pastors now that tells 100 grandkids stories i just realized i had this revelation i'm i apologize in advance not really so joshua made flint knives and circumcised the israelites at Gebeth Harloth. Now this is why he did it. This is why he did it. Because all those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, they had died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. So this generation had died. All the people that came out had been circumcised. Uh, they, as soon as they, they had crossed the, the, the Red Sea... They had a similar situation where, where all the men were circumcised because they hadn't been in, um, in Egypt. Uh, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey of, from Egypt had not. And so the Israelites had moved, had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died. Remember, because they didn't respond in belief, but they had unbelief. And, and they didn't move into all that God had promised to them since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us. This land flowing with milk and honey, which means the abundance of the Lord. And so he raised up sons in their place. And these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. So why 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 weren't they circumcised in the the wilderness? Because they were told to. I mean, why didn't it happen? It could have been I mean, some say a couple of reasons, scholars would say. Some would say because, I mean, even of their unbelief, they weren't, um, 
They weren't really holding out for the promises, all the promises of God. They, their hearts had been astray. But then also that the sign of circumcision was a sign of covenant and that they hadn't passed that on to their kids and, and that, that hadn't been an understanding. And so these sons then were, were, were circumcised and they were, they were still circumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the, the place has been called Gilgal to this day. So let's unpack this a little bit. So if we were going, so if you're a strategist and the, the, the enemy is afraid, right? And, the, and you've, your, your, your enemy has come, you know, the, your, your team, your army has come across this water, this land. They're here. It's time to attack. Like, doesn't it seem like the least logical thing to do would be to circumcise all the warriors? Like, it just, like, it doesn't, like, he puts them actually in the most vulnerable position that they could actually be in. And this is important. It's important because God sustained them in the wilderness, right? God split the Jordan at flood stage and brought them across. And if they would have moved in battle at that moment and had taken, had taken the land, well, they wouldn't have because they hadn't been circumcised, and that's a whole other theological implication. But, but they, they could have thought it was because of them. But by them stopping and then having this such a private thing happen, such a, a, a vulnerable, such a painful, such a disabilitating type thing that it put them in the place that they knew unless God. That it was God who was doing this. It was God who was responsible. It was God who filled everybody's heart with fear so they weren't attacked. So the nation, the city-states didn't come after them. That actually it was a reminder that it is really God who's going to fight the battle of Jericho, not them. That it's actually God who is our warrior. It's actually God is the one that goes before us and makes a way where there seems to be no way, as we sang earlier. And so why this? Why this? Why circumcision, right? Everybody, why, why this? Why is it this way? And, and there's a couple things we need to, to talk about here, and they're on, your, they're on your screen. One is identification, and one is obedience. And so if you, go, if you were to go back and you were to look at Genesis 17, that's the story where Abram is, moves into covenant with God. And his name is changed from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And he is circumcised and he receives this covenant. And it's, it's, it has huge implications because it, it identified Abraham and, his, and the generations that would come after him. Of their, it would identify them as people of God. It would identify them as people of God. It was, uh, it was done in a, I mean, very private-like situation, right? Very private place. Because ultimately, our interaction with the Lord is so intimate, is so private, it's so personal. That God wants to meet us at the very core of our personhood. And so as he does this, it also, it also has implication for for fruitfulness. That even as the seed, a man's seed, would pass by this, this place of being circumcised, that it was a 
promise to the generations that were to come of the faithfulness of God. Because it wasn't Abraham who had a lot of kids. It was God in Abraham. It was the miraculous God who provided for the children of Israel. And then the land was tied to the promise. It was the people of God and the place of God that it was together. And even in, he's even told that as you possess the land, that this is something that you'll continue. And so it marks this, this spiritual and physical fruitfulness of, of what the Lord wants to do. And it also, it says here, it says also that, it says, I have rolled away the reproach, verse 9, of Egypt from you. That this, this idea of this, it's cutting this flesh away has spiritual implication of cutting away the flesh of our, of our natural desires, of our fleshly desires, of, of those things that would not be a part of the promises of God. And that's even the reproach of Egypt is that they were, the children of Israel were ridiculed because they were going around in the wilderness for 40 years. And the Egyptians are like, you're never, your God has abandoned you. That's never going to happen. But it happened on that day that they began to move into all that God had promised them. And it was an act of obedience. It, it, it really was. It was this act of obedience of fulfilling what God had called them to do. And there's, and there's New Testament application. Did you know that? One of the reasons we need to really talk about this is because there's New Testament application. Uh, the New Testament application is, is water baptism. That as we look at circumcision in the Old Testament, because there was this transition that happened from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Because what happened is that the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they were still circumcised what the New Testament says in their flesh, but their hearts were not circumcised. That they were part of this religious club because of outwardness, because of outward compliance to the law of Moses, but yet inwardly their heart wasn't circumcised. And so with the coming of Jesus, there's this switch, there's this, there's this paradigm shift to what Paul said is the outside man, the physical aspect of circumcision isn't really that important because if you're doing it because you're following the law of Moses, well, hey, you got to follow all of it. And nobody's ever been able to do that. What's important here is, are you circumcised of the heart? As the flesh of self has those things that are not a part of the promises of God, have those been removed? And so what is to come to be an outward sign of being a person, of being in the family of God, of a person of promise and the family of promise of God now is inward. And so that's what, that's how water baptism ties in with circumcision. Because it's the same two principles of identification and obedience. That as we're baptized, we are identifying with Christ. That because when Christ died, we died with him when we put our faith and our trust in him. And when he is raised, when he is rose from the dead, so are we. And so what we do in water baptism, it's not, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're baptized, it doesn't make you a follower of Christ. It's what it is, is water baptism is an outward expression of an inward work. It's when we have turned our hearts and our lives over to the Lord and we're identifying with Him. It is the way that we identify with the body of Christ. Old Testament was circumcision. New Testament is baptism. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? Because when you come to Christ, now it's, it's being baptized in water. Because this was an issue in the New Testament, right? Because they're like, hey, if this circumcision thing has to happen, um, nobody's going like, to get saved, right? I just read the Bible. It's in there. And like, no, that's not a requirement. 
But as we do come to faith, and as an act of obedience, we're instructed to be baptized with water. That it's how we identify as part of the body of Christ, and it's an act of obedience. It really is. Jesus told to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we know that Jesus said that, um, you know, if you deny me, if you say you're not a follower of me, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not gonna say you're mine. That there's this actual act of obedience. Why is that? I'll tell you, there's something so powerful about submitting yourself to the baptismal waters. Of I've over and over again, I've talked to people that have struggled, struggling. And for some reason, a lot of times it's us men, it's us adult men that struggle with this of 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 of, of humbling ourselves to the point of being baptized in water. Of you know, we've put our faith in Christ and we trust Him, but we haven't yet, we haven't yet done that. You know, some have said that water baptism to Christianity is like what a wedding ring is to marriage. And you can't take that too far, but it's an interesting analysis that, I mean, being baptized in water isn't what makes you saved, right? Because if so, the thief on the cross, the criminal uh, next to Jesus, wouldn't have made it into heaven. And we know he did. And he hadn't been baptized in water. So, so I, I don't think there's good theological basis to say if you've not been baptized in water that there's no way you'll make it into heaven. But it is clear in Scripture that Jesus has told us to be baptized in water over and over. That's a clear instruction. It was in the, in the New Testament, every time somebody came to Christ, they were baptized in water um, as, a, as that marker. And it's like you can be married, right, and not wear a ring, but if you want everybody to know you're married, you wear a ring. It identifies you. And so our water, our being baptized in water is an act of identification with the, being part of the family of God, being part of the covenant family, and, and that we are alive in Christ and dead to sin. And it's also an act of obedience. You know, it's really interesting. I've heard missionaries from India. I'll just use India for example. It's true in other countries. But, but in, missionaries from India will say that, you know, when Jesus is presented, that many people will, oh yeah, I'll believe in Jesus. They'll, they'll pray a prayer or whatever. And what they do is they add Jesus to all their other hundreds of gods. But when it's time for water baptism... Around the world, water baptism is what gets you killed. Water baptism is what causes families to separate you. Why? It's because there is a spiritual principle to it. It is spiritually powerful that it makes a difference. And the enemy knows that. He knows that. And if you've not been baptized in water since you've put your faith in Christ, I know often um, maybe you or your kids may have, been, have been baptized as a baby were sprinkled before faith in Christ. There's a lot of, I know a lot of believers that have had that, and they walk with the Lord, and they love the Lord, but as, since they've made a decision to follow Christ, they've not yet been obedient in, in water baptism. And, and I want to encourage you to do that. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, that, that that didn't matter. It doesn't mean that your Christian life to this point hasn't mattered. It doesn't mean that. It simply means this is an instruction that the Lord gave, and it's the biblical principle that after you come to Christ, after you know him, then you're baptized in water. You're baptized into the family of God. It's a marker. And you know what I love about it is that the enemy so often will try to attack you and try to say, man, you're not, you know, this whole Christian, this whole thing, it's, I don't know. 
I know I'm the only one that's ever had that thought. But, but, but I'm telling you, when you have that marker, that stake in the ground of water baptism with witnesses, it's like, no, this is, this is, this is true. This is real. And I'm telling you, it, it really, really helps. And so next week, we're going to have a water baptism. And if you've not been baptized in water, you know, I'll be available afterwards. If you want to talk to me about this, I'd love to just talk to you one-on-one. You can mark it on your connection card. If you even feel right now like, man, I think this is something I ought to do. Um, maybe you've been away from the Lord and you're coming back to him. It's, that's legitimate to, to be baptized at that point. Um, just mark that on your connection card. Come talk to me. If you mark it on your connection card, you can put it in the basket on the way out or in the box. We have a box back by the exit. Um, you can give it to one of the ushers. You can give it to me. Uh, we would love, love to, for you to be able to be baptized in water next week. We'll do it both services. And so if you've, that's, that's, that's really the follow-up from this part of the, the message is to be baptized in water if you haven't. So let's continue in our passage. We see the restoration of the relationship. Now we're going to see the celebration of the relationship. We're in, in, in verse, verse 10. It says, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal in the plains of Jericho, the, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of the Lord. So, when the children of Israel were being brought out of Egypt, if you remember back, we refer to this often and it's called the Passover. Uh, it was the, 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 the final plague was that the firstborn would die. They were told to, to get the spotless lamb, kill the spotless lamb, put the blood on the doorpost. They were to make unleavened bread because they weren't going to have time. They were going to be leaving the next day. And they celebrated this passing over where death did not come to their house. And those that had, had observed this Passover, it, it worked. Death passed over, and their firstborn did not die. In the rest of Egypt, the firstborns died. And so then they were brought out of Egypt. And one other time, they celebrated the Passover. That was at Mount Sinai. And now they're coming. And, just, and, and so this is so powerful because they observed Passover that first time right before they came out. And this time, they have just come in. And, okay, coincidence, it just happens to be on Passover, right? Coincidence. Not really. And, and so it's exact the same day of Passover. And so they stop and they, they, they celebrate the relationship with the Lord. They celebrate this. And with this, the New Testament implication of this is communion. It's communion. That's why we have the crackers. The crackers, and we don't always use, um, you know, like well, there's no yeast in ours. But, but in, in Passover, it would be an unleavened bread. It would be a bread that there's no yeast in. Because it had to be made quickly. It had to be made fast. And it was, you know, because they, they had to be able to take it with them. They didn't have time for it to, to rise and to do the normal baking process. And then they would have partaken of the wine as a part of this Passover. And they would have, they would have partaken of the lamb. And so they did this at this moment. And this, the New Testament implication for us, the revelation for us is communion. That as we come to communion, the reason we partake of the bread is that represents the bread of, of Passover. And then we drink the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, because he is our Passover lamb. That's why we don't have lamb on Communion Sunday. You ever notice that? We have the bread, we have the wine, but you know why we don't have lamb? Because Jesus is the lamb. And I'm not trying to get mystical 
but Jesus is the Lamb. And so when we take this in, we're actually at a spiritual dynamic of taking in Jesus as a part of us, that we're feasting on Him as His body. And so that is, and so we see as, as, as the children of Israel coming across the Jordan here that it's, it, this is magnificent. Because at the point where it could have seemed like they could have taken everything, God says, nope, stop. Because this is all about relationship. I want you to be identified as my people. I want you to have the marker of my covenant as a people of promise, moving into this place of promise. And it's all, it's the same for us today, that what we were able to do in Jesus and through Jesus isn't about us. It's all about the Lord. It's all about Jesus. And then that's even what communion is. Communion is looking back at what Jesus has done. And it's looking at what he is doing now. And then it even looks forward to his return, of his victorious return. And so when we, when we partake of this communion, it's so, so important because we truly begin to understand God's redemptive plan. That this was part, this was, he orchestrated this from all time. That this is what he had always, always intended. intended. That Christ, he is our Passover. And so, as, as we look at this passage, and come to the very last thing in verse 12. Where as soon as they participated in this, the manna stopped. Now they had been getting manna every day except for Sabbath. Every day for this 40 years. And then they come in, they celebrate the Passover, and then the manna stops. And then from this moment forward, they eat the produce of the land. They eat the produce of the land. Now we know that Jesus is tied into the picture of manna, that he is our living bread, John 6. But there's something very significant in this transition. I want to quote a, a, just a theologian that I love, Eugene Peterson. I have this, this quote up there. He says, It is in this moment that the Israelites transitioned from living by miracles to living by what he calls ministry. Because up until this point, they have lived by miracle. Miracle to miracle to miracle. And it's not that the miraculous doesn't still happen in their life, because we're going to talk about Jericho, and man, that's miraculous, right? But in this aspect of, of their food being provided miraculously now, they have to gather the fruit of the land. They have to gather the grain. They have to, they have to work it. And, and Eugene Peterson, I love his take on this. He says that, that Joshua is like the weld. He's like a welder that, that welds these two things together of miracle and of ministry. Of miracle, you even call it work. That... Have you ever noticed that God can, can, can sustain you with miracle after miracle, but there's also the side that we have to do? And there's this balance of what God can do that only he can do and what we have to do that he won't do. And so at this point, he had been providing everything, but now what would have happened after this if they would have waited for the manna just to land, right? Okay, they'd have been getting hungry, wouldn't they? They had to move into all that God had for them. Both are miraculous, right? One is miraculous that he provided miraculously. The other is miraculous that he had provided that for them to go and to take, right? And I think it really causes us to even really think about what is miraculous. Like, has anybody here ever been, like, saved in, from a car wreck? Like, I have. Like, anybody ever been like, wow, that was close. If God hadn't have done something, or maybe you've walked away from a wreck that was just like, I should not have walked away from that. That was God. 
Don't we all recognize that's a miracle of God? Wouldn't you say we'd recognize that? But if we thought about maybe the last 10 years, you've not been in in an accident at all? And have you ever thought about how that could be as miraculous as being walking away from a, a twisted up car? Have you, I mean, sure, we, don't, we don't always think about that, do we? Or have you guys ever had God just provide financially for you in a way that just is miraculous? It's like, wow. But could it be just as miraculous that we have a job to go to tomorrow and to work? You see what I'm saying? And so if you just count on the miraculous, then you're, gonna, you're not going to do what you need to do but yet, if it's all just of what you can do and you're not open to what God can do that you can't do, you're going to miss out. And so as people of God, there's this balance between the miraculous and what Eugene Peterson calls ministry, of, being, of walking in this balance together that I think is so important. And we'll see this as we watch the children of Israel move forward. We'll see them, them do what only... I mean, God's going to say, go for it, and he provides the victory, but they still have to go for it. Okay, and so that's that's what we're going to be seeing play out here in the next several weeks. So as follow up, if you've not been obedient to the Lord, it really is a matter of obedience of 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 being baptized in water. If if you haven't done that, I want to encourage you to do that as your pastor. And I'd be happy to talk to you about it personally. Be happy to answer any questions you have, anything you could ask your small group leader, your fusion group leader as well. But we're going to do that next Sunday, and so we want you to bring a change of clothes and a towel, and we'll do it in both services. So we'd love for you to be able to do that. And then as a follow-up, Brady, if you'll come, whoever else is going to be on the team with you, we're going to partake of communion this morning. And so as we partake of communion, we are celebrating our relationship with the Lord. Now, this is for the people of God. Just like circumcision was was for the people of God. Even communion Passover was for the people of God. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you've not put your faith and your trust in Him, I want to encourage you to do that right now. That even at this moment, you would pray a prayer like this. You would say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I surrender my life and my heart to You. I give You everything, Lord. And I ask for You to come and to forgive me and to restore me into relationship with You.